Welcome to the Purposeful Planning Podcast, where you'll gain tangible, practical suggestions to help you transform and elevate your practice. Our content is for both seasoned professionals working with complex family systems and those just entering the field. These podcasts will also be valuable for family leaders who are dedicated to helping individual family members find their pathway to flourishing lives and strengthening the relational fabric of the family. Welcome and thank you for joining us. And now your host. This is the Purposeful Planning Podcast, and I am your host for today, Dr. Jamie Traeger-Muni, and I am absolutely thrilled to be here with my friend and my colleague, Cubby Edwards-Pitt, to discuss your latest book in the series, and your latest book is entitled Engaged, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, Lessons from Inheritors and Their Significant Others. Cubby, could you just take a minute to, to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, can I say how excited I am to be here with you, Jamie, because not only do I so cherish our friendship, but I also really count you as a complete expert in the topic that we are talking about today. So I'm just thrilled to be able to discuss these issues with you. So a bit about me. So I'm the chief creative officer of the firm Ballantine Partners, which is a multifamily office. And I've been there for 20 years come March of next year. Wow. I know. Wow. <laughs> and we we don't look any older, right, Jamie? Um, and um, and I and I'm I have now dedicated my time with the firm on writing. This is the third book, and so I really spend my time sharing the lessons from now these three books. The first book came out in 2014, Raised Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. And that was aimed at helping parents raise children well amid abundance. And then the second book is Aged Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, which was 2017. And that's really aimed at helping all of us have a vibrant later life, but also speaking to the hopes and dreams of middle-aged children for what they hope their parents will do to plan for their own passing so that the family is left with uh, clarity and not discord. And then this book focuses the lens of this sort of positive success format on this very little studied, crazily little studied realm of the relationship between an inheritor and their significant other as they go about forging that very, um, the formative years of their relationship when they first meet, when they get married, when they begin to have their own family, and all the ways in which wealth swirls around that. And what I heard from the people I interviewed, the couples I interviewed about how to make that go well. So I, I spend time now talking about those lessons and trying to help families who are in that very stage themselves. One of the things I love about the model of your books is that it's not just you're coming to us with your expertise and what you're seeing, but you're really going to the source and asking, you know, parents or people who are aging and now, and and you're absolutely right, Covey, it's amazing how little studied it is at looking at this dynamic of coming together and becoming engaged and setting couples up for winning. So, you know, tell us about the the subjects that you interviewed. Um, give us a little sense of where you really got um, 
you know, most of the of the lessons and the, you know, the the truth, because there's some truths that really came out in this book. Thank you, Jimmy. I really appreciate that. And I agree. I mean, that's what makes this fun for me. You know, I mean, I get to hear these stories and I get to spend years listening to people. And it's really such an honor and a, a privilege to be in that space to hear their stories and hear those um feelings and the candor with which they express that to me. And it, it leaves me with a tremendous sense of duty to not only share those hard-won lessons, but also do it in a really hopefully sensitive way to honor people's experiences. So, but the people I interviewed, they were all, um, I, I interviewed over 50 people, but that represented 22 couples and they were um, ranging in age from their thirties to their seventies. They were all still in their first marriages and they were recounting and probably 80%, it was 77% characterized themselves as an inheritor married to a non-inheritor. And the interviews were very open-ended. I really just talked with these individuals and asked them things like, tell me the story of you. Tell me how you first met. You know, tell me about how you first started talking about getting married. And then there was always the, and tell me how wealth came up during that time for you. And what was really shocking to me, Jamie, is that I kind of felt like I'd know what I'd hear. I mean, I've done this for, as you know, almost 20 years, and I do work with individuals just like this and feel like I have good relationships with them and that I would kind of know what would come out and what I ended up hearing absolutely stunned me. And what I hope we can talk about today is the five things I'll never do the same as an advisor as a result of what I heard. And I thought a lot about why was I hearing things I've never heard before? And I think two things, one, I had guaranteed complete anonymity to these individuals. And so they could be truly assured that what they said would not get back to their parents or their even advisory team um, within our firm, if they were clients of ours. Um, and on top of that, I had often both couples, both members of the couple on the phone. And wow. the whole lens was, I want to hear from you equally. Each of you are equal partners in this discussion. And I think that created a freedom for the, um, sad to say, I think in our industry, sometimes the partner who comes into the relationship with less money doesn't feel as if they really have full uh, carte blanche to say what's really on their mind. And I think I was grateful to have created that environment. And I think I heard some new things as a result. Wow. I'm really anxious to dive in and hear those five things, but I have a really quick question first. Um, you know, I think sometimes, um, we worry as advisors, um, you know, particularly those people who, you know, this is my job as a, as a wealth, uh, you know, coach and wealth specialist, but for those of us who don't wear that hat, um, to really go in where we think there might be painful memories. I'm just wondering, um, when the conversations were over, did it have an effect of being a healing conversation, even if painful things were brought up, just the opportunity to really share out loud their experience? Did that make a positive difference for them? Yes. I'm so glad you asked that, Jamie, because, you know, I became pretty quickly aware 
that I was on hallowed ground in these discussions. You know, I feel like I've done these interviews before. I had my first book, my second book, but you know, first book was interviewing now grown people about wonderful things their parents did. And the second book was vibrantly aging individuals about how their life is pretty good in general. Here I was on absolute intimate ground of relationships, intimacy and money and all those things and relationships with in-laws. And, and so I really felt both this um, tremendous awareness of that, that depth of the conversation. And I do feel that for, I think almost everyone at the end, I got a lot of like, one couple said it so well. They actually do this thing annually where they call it their state of the union. They go away to a restaurant that they don't normally go to and they just talk about their relationship and they they schedule that and they make sure to kind of clear the air and talk about I thought it was a very cool idea. But so when very we cool. finished our cool, right? When we finished our discussion, they said, Well, this was like our state of the union this year. So um, you know, I think it, it ended up being that. And some people I think were reflecting for the first time in sort of a facilitated way about very painful topic. Some of the couples were recalling the prenuptial from 35 years ago, and there were still tears. And I think that they felt relieved to be able to express that. And then also a tremendous, um, I felt this sense that they were wanting me to share the lessons they experienced so that others could benefit from them. And I think that provided a sense of perhaps, um, I, I don't know, purpose to why these conversations might be helpful to others. Yeah. And I'm really seeing that with the clients that I've recommended the book. I mean, to be able to see their, even if it's not a perfect fit, but to see sort of their story reflected back in a compassionate way. And, you know, you interviewed all couples that are, are really in healthy relationships. And like you said, in their first marriages, so doing it right and yet still struggling and working through it, that has been, you know, my clients say, wow, we never, we didn't, we thought we were the only ones. Um, that is so true. And I actually heard from a number of people, two things. One was, I wish there'd been a book like this when I was going through this. Um, and, and they, so I felt this sense of needing to be that book for everyone who's going through it now. Um, you know, and they, and they also, I think it's true that there are positive stories, but you're, to your point, it wasn't Pollyanna. It wasn't like everything was always perfect. You know, a lot of it is how do we create something positive from something that might've been really, really challenging and how do we get through it? And I think that's what I wanted to share, how people really worked through these challenges that a lot of the couples we are working with face and emerged on the other side, stronger, really, in many instances, stronger and better and closer as a couple. That's great. And there's clearly so much for, for couples to learn. But, you know, there's also so much for advisors to learn in this book. And, you know, I know you had talked about um, the five things that you'll never do again. I'm so curious, you know, someone who's been doing this for 20 years to have five things that you'll never do again. Um, please, and, and, you know, especially if we're talking here to a group of advisors. Enlighten us, Cubby. Sure. Okay. Well, so to just take a a little step back to give a little context about the sort of arc that the book covers, because then the five things fit within that arc. So, you know, I, I set out to talk about love, but I realized pretty early, I can't just start there. You know, the story doesn't really start there, particularly really for either member of the couple, but where it really starts typically is 
especially if you're an inheritor, your process of individuation from your wealthy family and how you kind of go about the process of proving to yourself that you have contributions of your own making and feeling good about that when you wake up every day. And so the whole first section of the book is called On Your Own. And it's that process. What I heard from the people I interviewed, both sets of um, partners about how they became an adult essentially in their twenties and the things that they did to help themselves get there. Because what I really heard was that that provided a foundation that enabled them to then be able to let a relationship into their life, essentially. Um, And the second piece of that being that a piece of that happens in relationship, you know, who you become often is, is there as a function of that partner you choose who helps you sort of is the mirror of the who you want to become in life. So that whole first section is all about that. So I'll I'll just give you the rest of the section that we can talk about the very important advisor lessons that came out of that. Um, the second section is just the two of us. And it's all about, okay, now we've met, we're going to um, somehow, uh, you know, cement this relationship. And so that gets into the really important conversations that couples need to have, particularly if they're coming to the relationship from different financial backgrounds, things they should agree on. And then the whole prenuptial discussion, which... We can talk a lot about that. And then the final one is beyond us. And that gets into the relationship with broader families, families with the nest, not just the the wealthier family. Um, Parenting, uh, when you're now trying to forge your own next generation. And then beyond all of the, beyond this, I heard from a lot of people that they at some point needed to redefine the wealth management ecosystem in their life to better be true to them and what they wanted. So advisors, trustees, attorneys, et cetera. So there's a chapter on that. But back to this individuation section, you know, so if you hear from people that what they were struggling with is essentially shame, sometimes a sense of shame of unearned advantage, sometimes, you know, the shadows we've had in our field called the shadows, the looming success of their parents, um, and then also this support that whether it's financial support or just well-meaning people doing a lot of things for them that they might otherwise do in their own life, support that essentially undermines their own capacity. And so, People said, these are what we've struggled with. Here's how we got through it. We got through it by um, essentially developing the success characteristics I talk about in my first book, you know, at some point supporting themselves, being engaged in a career of their own choosing, having some sense of self-esteem driven by their own contributions, and then being able to get themselves out of a problem of their own making. And while they were on this journey, I heard some stories saying, here's what was helpful. Here was, was what was not helpful. And so the lesson to the advisor Uh, You know, a lot of us are in the business of providing, quote, multi-generational services. And, you know, what that often means to the parent who is employing those services and has hired the advisor is, I want you to be, quote, helpful to my family, my whole family, including my children. So, you know, when my 22-year-old is out there in the world and they're renting their first apartment or they're figuring out what their first job is about, I want you to kind of hold their hand and do those things for them. And what I heard from one couple in particular was, you know, we were doing just the things we should have done. We were in our 20s. We're out there. We're sort of mastering adulting skills, figuring out how to pay our bills. And all of a sudden, the family office is created and all these things are lifted from us. And the family office does all this stuff for us. And this couple was reflecting on this now 30 years later and saying that they felt that was really not good for them. It was very infantilizing. And they ended up feeling when they looked around, you know, 10 years into this, that they didn't know how to do anything that a lot of their peers knew how to do. How do I get insurance? You know, how, all those things. What does it even mean to file my taxes? You know, right now I call somebody and it happens. Um, so the conclusion for me as an advisor was, 
I think we need to do a better job, and um, and I, I include myself in this too, of stepping into the space between what the parent is asking for, the help they're asking for, and help we provide. And saying to the parent, I want to help your family. Here's what help is actually. Let me understand. I think the goal, I think the goal we're talking about is you want a child who feels capable, self-sufficient, and secure in their ability to function in life. We share that goal. Here's how you actually manifest that goal. And that means I should not be doing the things for the child. I shouldn't be calling them five times to remind them to get their tax form and whatever. I should be working with you to help set the expectation about what you should say to your children they're supposed to do for themselves. And I will also coach the child about how one goes about doing these things in life. You know, how does one get an apartment? Oh, here's what you do. Here's who you call. Here's what. And so basically trying to give there's a guy in our industry, Jeff Savlov, and he has this thing called the golden sippy cup rule, which I just love. And it's as soon as a child is, you know, two years old, old enough to teetle-tottle over to the dishwasher and put the sippy cup in on their own, let them do that. And I think it's that principle writ large. You know, if the 25-year-old can call the insurance company on their own, let them do that because they will develop a sense of capacity in doing that. So that's one. So any questions on that one, Jamie, before? I, I just think... I. Not really a question, but I just love that because I think sometimes what parents are short-sighted about is they think they're being helpful and, and kids, you know, they think this is useful in the short run because it makes their life easier, but they aren't thinking long-term. And, you know, I can't tell you how many clients I have that have so much shame because they never learned how to balance their checkbook. They never learned the basics of their taxes when they were supposed to learn it. And now they're in their fifties and it's like mortifying to them that, you know, and it's, it's like not knowing how to read as an adult. Um, so, yes. you know, what I really hear you saying is like, let's teach age appropriate skills at the developmental time, let them get their sea legs around it. And then what happens later on in terms of family office services might shift once they know that they have some core competencies. Is that is that pretty much what you're saying? Absolutely. And I think that part of this is working with the parents on what the narrative is. Because I talk in the book about how part of what's really hard for parents is they know that their child knows that they could be helping in some way. You know, they could have the advisor do it for them. They could pay for it to be done, all this stuff. And so they feel like it either looks punitive or hypocritical to be somehow not providing the help. And I encourage parents to just be really transparent about this. Of course, we could buy that thing for you. Of course, we could help. We get someone to do that for you. But we're not because we love you and we want you to do those things on your own because we know it will help you feel more capable and happy in your life. And sometimes I say to parents, you know, I think if you ask parents, you know, knee-jerk response, what's your dream for your child? Most parents will say, including me, you know, I want them to be happy. But then when you really think of in your own life, going through the world as an adult, what actually do you want for yourself each and every day? It's that you feel capable to handle what life throws at you in each and every given day. And that actually often produces contentment and happiness. And so I think that we have to help our clients, you know, uh, who are parents think about how do I help my child feel capable? Uh, and often it's a different set of immediate to-dos and often exactly the opposite from the ones that would help them be happy in the moment. So. Okay, so that's lesson one. The other lesson was all about information and education because back to the shame point, as I'm sure you see all the time too, Jamie, you know, 
When a young person is still struggling with that shame and feeling like I'm just trying to figure out who I am without this money so I can maybe get to a point where I can come back and engage with the money with some agency, information about the money can be uh, worse than unhelpful. It can be destructive. You know, I heard stories in the book about uh, inheritors getting, you know, investment reporting statements in the mail every quarter and just looking at these and feeling a tremendous sense of both not understanding it, but also not even really wanting to understand it, just literally like wanting to hide it in a drawer. And so what I, what I realized from that is that, again, stepping into the space between what the parent is often asking for, which is, can you educate my child? You know, and often what the parent means by that question is what the parent is currently viewing in their life as education. You know, you get a sort of typical 60 year old, 70 year old, who's maybe had some financial successes now engaged in financial matters, like evaluating investments, you know, looking at private equity deals. And so they think my 22-year-old should learn about these things. When in reality, what that 22-year-old really needs is some space in their own life to be able to define and learn about money matters that matter to them, that they feel some sense of agency over. Like, oh, I got this job. Oh, from this payment I get in a paycheck, I can afford this rent on this, you know, apartment. And oh, there's this 401k thing. And what's that all about? Those types of matters. And what I saw from the stories is it was only when people started to experience some success in financial matters that they felt belonged to them, that they finally were able to throw off this mantle of money and finance is only the domain of my parents and finally think, okay, there's something here that I get. And it was when they developed that sense of agency that they then became curious about the broader stuff and could understand and intake that information. So I've been finding myself doing more work now with parents to say, let's talk about the difference between the education you're wanting your child to have and the education that is going to actually be helpful for them at this stage. And that will ultimately get them coming back to learn the things that you're doing now. But that takes that again is saying basically uh, it's recasting what the parent is looking for and trying to do something a little bit different. Great, great. And, you know, this we knew this was going to happen, that we were going to get frustrated of because this is a shorter format. Um, there's so much I want to ask you. And because I know that we're already at the 20 minute mark, uh, you know, we're going to probably have to do it a little bit more bite size. And okay. you know, maybe you'll come back for round two of more in depth. Um, but share with us the other three lessons. Please. Okay, I'll do bite size now. Okay, bite size. Uh, three sentences on each. Well, maybe a little bit more than three sentences. But so I did talk about love and the, the fact that who you are as a person, identity often is formed in relationship. And so I heard from a lot of the inheritor partners that this person that they're now married to was the first person who saw them as an adult. That first person that really was viewing them as who they wanted to become. And so what's interesting is when that's a situation, what ends up happening is the inheritor is often changing. They're often evolving into that adult. They sort of were always meant to be. And what can sometimes happen then is that other people in the system, you know, the inheritor's parents, the advisors view that change as maybe not good and think the partner is the one, quote, changing the inheritor. Rocking the boat. Rocking the boat, the instigator, you know, all this stuff. When in reality, how 
the two members of the couple perceive it is that they are both that mirror for each other and they're both becoming exactly who they're meant to be. And I heard a lot of people say things like, my partner keeps me who I am. They Mm. keep me that person. They're the ones who I can turn to, which is kind of like you hear this in a lot of stories about love. That's what the partners in functioning relationships, that's what partners do for each other. So the takeaway for the advisor was view that partner as the gift they are, you know, not the uh, instigator or view the change that is happening as natural and normal and perhaps good uh, and not necessarily, of course, we all know about relationships that are not great and shouldn't have worked out from the get-go, but my view was there are many, most of the ones I'm familiar with are relationships that are good, should work, if only this wealth stuff and all of the advisory ecosystem doesn't muck it up essentially. Uh, So that's the takeaway on that one is basically understand what's happening and help. We as advisors, I think can really help the wealth generating parents understand that that's the partner's role Um, and, and try to see their child, their adult child as their partner sees them and try to see their child's partner as the child sees them. And that's not easy, but I think really helpful. Okay. Last, last two points. There's two chapters on prenuptial agreements, Davey, as I know you know. My uh, concise takeaway there is I will never approach a prenuptial agreement as a check the box, uh, standard risk mitigation item again. There were probably in every conversation I had, at least 25% to a third became about the prenuptial process that happened and how painful it was and how some of the scars are still present, as I mentioned, tears still 30 years later. And so the takeaway there was, I'm not talking about all prenuptials being bad. It's the particular situation in which the person or entity driving the process is not really the couple themselves. It's the advisor or the parent or someone from the outside is coming in at pretty much the final hour and saying, you need this thing, which is just a check the box thing. And so the stories are all about the dynamics, really painful dynamics that can introduce into a relationship, loyalty, equality, lack of agency, I mean, unity, and how these couples made it through that. And often in very relationship enhancing ways, but I encourage anyone contemplating this to read those stories and see uh, not only what not great processes felt like, but there are some stories there of a good process, which is, I'd say, a mediated process where there's someone who's really standing for the couple together, not the couple as each represented by opposing counsel. Um, you know, so and then the last piece is. Uh, as I mentioned you know, I, I get into the parenting. So like now here you are as an inheritor and your partner trying to parent your own children. And one of the questions that comes up in that chapter is take stock of your own life and think, am I the adult I hope my child will become? And one of the things that is an interesting uh, insight that came to a lot of the people I spoke with when they did that analysis, one of the few remaining areas in their life where they were still essentially a child was their wealth management ecosystem. Sort of how they were treated by an advisor or a trustee or an attorney who really just saw them as the subordinate, quote, next gen to the paying wealth generating parent client. And there's an entire chapter about how these people went from that state of affairs, the subordinate, to remaking that whole world to be the person in charge. 
And so the takeaway for advisors, often what happens there is there's a breaking, the chapter's called breaking free. There's a breaking away. You know, there's statistics. I think they, um, in the voice of the rising generation, you know, Keith and Jay and Susan talk about it's 98% of next gens fire their parents' advisor. And so part of the takeaway for advisors and our whole industry really is if there's, if it's normal really for each generation to kind of want to go their own way to some degree, individually and individually within their wealth management framework, let's accept that and say, it's okay. And let's, I say, sometimes, you know, we, I think are conflating things in a not great way. We're saying, you know, successful wealth preservation necessitates togetherness when in reality in family business context it might but when you've got basically inherited pretty much liquid wealth you can have very successful wealth management and you know you don't need really uh intricate structures to lock people together to manage wealth you know well and you also don't need any assets to enjoy the type of family togetherness that most families enjoy, you know, reunions, uh, shared storytelling. So I basically say, what if we could focus as an industry on trying to provide people the autonomy they're seeking in their wealth management, but then help them as families create togetherness moments that are actually enjoyable and low stakes, you know, for everyone involved rather than putting it all together in the pot. And I heard from a lot of people that that approach would have been far better, that they ended up spending 10, 20 years trying to disaggregate from a family management ecosystem, a family office, a trustee that was basically constraining them so they couldn't become who they were trying to become. And what, and the last thing I'll say on that is when they finally got it done, I heard from people, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh, and by the way, I credit my spouse with helping us persevere. And I wish I'd, I only wish I'd done it earlier because now I feel liberated. I feel like I can be myself. I feel it finally engaged with my money and like I can you know use it for things I believe in. So it was, it was really inspiring to hear the people who felt on the back end of that. And I kind of just wanted to give everyone else permission because a lot of people said, I didn't know I could do this. And I've made, I've been made to feel like I'm a horrible person basically, because I've wanted to do this. Well, I think those are all gems and I really encourage people to, especially if you resonated with those gems to get Cubby's book, read Cubby's book, because the stories really illustrate so beautifully each of those points and, you know, the pain and what couples did to to find their own agency to to work together and i know you know in one of my most important advisory roles coming up i'm hoping that my son and his girlfriend will be getting engaged soon so i've already bought two copies that i uh what do you do you uh not autograph them that you uh write in (laughs) um and, you know, I can't wait to give it to them because I think if I try to explain these things to them, it falls short. But if I give them your book and allow them to see other people's stories reflected and how they worked it out, then I think, first of all, we have a lot more um, of a basis to start a conversation amongst us, but they also really get to see how they want to move. And, you know, I'm hoping that, um, you know, 
I'm hoping that they'll they'll make their own decisions and that we'll serve more as in a role to support them. So, you know, I thank you on that very, very personal individual level that this was perfect timing. So, but um, hey, you know, I also makes- thank you on behalf of the PPI community because I know that this conversation will really add to to each of our wisdom. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Jamie. And that means so much to me that it would have any, um, you know, benefit in your life. And I'd say if that's your approach of basically just providing it and then stepping back and letting them make their own decisions, I think you're you know, like 95% of the way there. Because <laughs> I, I think that that's so much of what I heard people really appreciated was kind of feeling trusted to define their own life with their partner, uh, being this, being given the space to lead a couple defined life rather than something outside of that. So, so thank you, Jamie. I've been so, so enjoyed our time together. I did too. And uh, we will, we will have more in the future. I promise. Thank you, Covey. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you are a member of the Purposeful Planning Institute, I want to invite you to come post in the community forum and share your key takeaways from today's conversation. And if you're not a member yet, here's your invitation to join us and be part of our community and access the network, resources, and tools you need to transform your client relationships and your practice. And don't forget to use promo code PURPOSEFUL to receive a 10% discount on a membership. Learn more at PurposefulPlanningInstitute.com. Thank you.